welcome back to Now, the podcast celebrating a variously compiled world of pop. In each episode, a variety of fabulous guests and I explore favourite compilation albums, as well as considering how these collections shaped pop culture and now fondly stand as time captures for our own musical and life milestones. I hope that you will enjoy the pop memories in this episode. Please follow the show through your favourite podcast provider and join in with me, Ian, on the Pop Rambler Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. Joining me for this episode is Neil Kilcarney. Neil has been writing about pop since 1994, starting out at the Weekly Melody Maker before moving on to a host of magazines and newspapers, mainly focused around hip-hop, metal and alternative rock. Alongside nearly 30 years of music journalism and critics, he has written three books, is a regular contributor to Chart Music Podcast, is currently running his own Substack, winding up indie fans on the internet, and has just bought out a double album with his band, The Moonbears. And to quote rockbackpages.com, Neil is a writer that inspires fear in his peers, awe in his readers, and divides opinion wherever his words drop. Would that be correct, Neil? Um, yeah, it's amazing how touchy people can get. <laughs> I mean, it's not that I'm poking a hornet's nest as such, but yeah, my God, indie fans don't like their sacred cows kind of being questioned in any way. And quite often I've been kept away from those bands when I was at Melody Maker. So I sort of saw blogging and, and writing for sites as a chance to lay into the likes of Stone Roses and Oasis, who I've always despised. And, and consequently, yeah, a lot of people get awfully irate about it. But I just think people aren't kind of used to that. I mean, as a music press reader, I was used to every week, you know, bands that I loved getting slagged off. And so long as it was done in a kind of funny way, way that was okay but now if you slag off bands of course it's like oh you've, you've got a point to prove you're trying to make a name for yourself and all of this sort of <laughs> stuff so yeah still winding up the indie fans so anyway welcome back to now it's brilliant to have you on board with the podcast thanks so much for having us on here so the moon bears how are things going i mean as with a lot of bands and artists in recent years the pandemic had a big effect and we kind of put the final dotted eye on this double album that we've made um literally the night before lockdown so we kind of been sat on our hands a little bit now that they're here oh man they're beautiful the album's called four sides for red red is what i used to call my missus because uh, we used to love the film the philadelphia story and carrie grant used to call Catherine hepburn that in that film my wife passed on in 2018 and now that uh, all of these songs are completed and the thing is an object when i listen I'm in tears because I realise what these songs are about. They are about loss and stuff like that. So now that it's an object and it's a kind of crystalline thing, I mean, of course, all people in bands say this. Oh, it's a great album. I'm immensely proud of it. Yeah, the Moonbears have kept me sane. And making music has utterly transformed the way I write about music. When I started off, I, I always used to think, oh, good songs aren't enough. You need more, you need more. But actually writing music, making music, it really does make you realise, fucking hell, writing a good song is a difficult thing. The question is, of course, when the reviews start coming in, <laughs> and, and, you know, can I cope? Because famously, you know, critics can dish it out that they can't take it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm at the other end of the kind of the, the, the firing line now. So let's see what happens. So a double album. Are we, are we talking White Album here? Are we talking Tusk? Did you have Ooh. interesting conversations around the sequencing? There's so many great doubles that we all love in the band. Mm -hmm. um, and we weren't, in a sense, trying to emulate those necessarily. But in a weird, serendipitous way, it all worked out. And uh, we're immensely, immensely proud of it. Um, the artwork was key. Just trying to create, in a way... You know that it's a it's an old cliche, but that that sealed in immersive feel of a good double where where you you put it on, you sit back, you look at the artwork, you really soak into it. Um, we've tried to create that, and miraculously, we have. Fantastic. So, is it released then? Is it can people go? And it's buy out. It? It's out on Bandcamp. And yeah. Um, yeah, you can go buy it. If you're in Cov, where I'm from, Coventry, go to Just Dropped In Records at Fargo and you can pick up a physical copy. I mean, of course, I'm going to say the physical version is the best version. Of course. It is. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But it does feel like, yeah, you know, once I'm gone, this is something I made, or yeah. as part of at least, that, you know, judge me on that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I have a kind of ambivalent relationship towards vinyl because I had a huge vinyl collection and I had to sell it all to keep yep. the lights on, keep my family fed and all of that. Um, so now I kind of con myself that, yeah, it's not about ownership anymore. It's all about connectivity. And Spotify, in a sense, is a dream. I have access to all of these things that I would never have 
in a million years have been able to afford. So I kind of reassure myself with that fact that I, I can't deny that the tactility of the object, the warmth of the sound, I do still prize that enormously. But yeah, I mean, I, I, as we'll come to discuss actually in this, um, in this episode, I am extremely wary of golden age narratives, of mm. the idea that things were better back then or something like that. I'm extremely wary of that. I bitterly resent that notion. I actually think that sort of currently... We are living in a golden age. As a pop listener, mm. I am living in a golden age. Every week, there are a hundred new things I need to listen to that are amazing. So, yeah, I've kind of got over ownership as a thing. But, man, I miss my records so much. <laughs> you know, As a really young child, music was, was part of my house a lot. But the way I accessed music kind of changed over time and hugely affected what I listened to. As a very, very young child, sort of very early 70s, my dad had a reel-to-reel tape player that he bought over from India in 63 when he immigrated here. And he had a really odd selection of kind of reel-to-reel tapes that he made himself, taping off the radio and stuff like that. There was a lot of Bollywood there, which was always a big part of the soundtrack of my house growing up, and a lot of Indian classical music as well. But also just these oddities like the Seekers and Harry Belafonte Fonte and stuff like this. Somewhere in this very house is probably a recording of me age three singing Where Have All the Flowers Gone, the Pete Seeger song. <laughs> and then we did get a record player around about 74, 75, and people started buying us records. Uh, co-workers of my mum and dad in a sense to integrate us a bit you know mm-hmm. there weren't that many Asian families in country at that time and and you know they buy us records in a way they weren't sort of crash courses and out of the English <laughs> we had a bit of classical vinyl and that started a love affair with classical music from a very very young age classical music when you're a kid before you've developed taste in a sense all you respond to is melody and rhythm and and there's nobody telling you this music isn't for you it's classical you just kind of respond to it. So I was a right precocious little git stood on a chair conducting with a chopstick. But there was also a bit of, along with Tchaikovsky and stuff like that, there was a bit of Johnny Cash in there. There's a Charlie Drake album I loved. There was Jeff Love plays great Western themes. That was a really important record for me at the time as well. Just in energizing me to music. Music for Pleasure, that label mm, from yeah. the 70s, was an immensely important label for a lot of us. Mm. By the late 70s, I'm finally starting to ask for records, you know, or buy buying records, quite often chart compilations, just random things with a boxing glove on the front and it says like chart buster on it or something like that. Those top of the pots comps. Uh, I'll never forget the 1979 one, which has Death Disco by Pill on it. That is unbelievably mind-blowing, even though it wasn't the original. Um, The radio has become massively important to me in the late 70s. But crucially, as the early 80s start, and I'm about eight, nine, my big sister becomes really important. She's three years older than me. And she becomes, you know, it's not so much hand-me-downs. She becomes a conduit for me uh, in a big way. She kicks open doors as an Asian kid, kind of not really conforming to the Asian predictions that parents of that era kind of really put around us. She becomes really important what she's bringing through the door. So she's bringing through Sostel and Duran and Wham, she's a big pop fan in the early 80s. But she starts getting bored by all of that stuff around about 84, like a lot of us mm. did. You know, 81, 82, exciting times. 83, I don't know. You've got people like Howard Jones and this kind of, (laughs) I don't know, synth pop getting a bit boring and getting owned by the proggers, really. And the freaks kind of leave pop a little bit. It all becomes very aspirational, look, would be mobile. She lost interest and immediately started diving, like a lot of people did at that period, back into the 60s. Mm. So suddenly, around about 83, 84, even though I start getting excited by some new names like Prince and Frankie and The Cure, she's bringing back records by The Stones and The Beatles and The Velvet Underground and Doors and Jimi Hendrix and Can't Stop Dancing compilations and all this sort of stuff. Simultaneously with that, in the mid-80s, this compilation LP arrives in my life that kind of changes my life. Uh, it's called Formula 30. Oh, it, yeah. 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 It's now, like a kind of chalkboard thing. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And the cover was engrossing because it was covered mm. in tickets and badges and all kinds of detritus from the sexes. The track listing was intriguing. It had four Stones tracks on it. And that started me on my lifelong obsession with the Stones, who are my favourite band, I think. But it also had Roxy, T-Rex, all kinds of stuff. And that compilation in combination with the tv show that was really popular at the time the rock and roll years now we look back to 1966 in our rock and roll years (laughs) 
um, which which matched kind of news clips to music from the 60s and 70s. It blew a lot of minds, that show. Really, you know, to this day, when I hear something like, I don't know, Life on Mars by David Bowie, I still remember the rock and roll years matching that song with footage of the first Concorde crash and stuff like that. It's really important, that show, especially in 85 sort of yeah. time, because mid-80s, that rolled-up sleeve Phil Collins kind of aspirational yuppie pop was really not speaking to a lot of us, whereas the 60s stuff did. What was crucial at this point was do, finding stuff out on your own reconnaissance. So, yes, you'd have this Formula 30 LP, Roxy Music. Well, let's let's see what they're all about. Let's go and find out about their records. That in combination with a sacred place to me, Coventry Central Library. There was some blessed lunatic on the staff at Coventry Central Library who just bought an amazing wealth of music into my life uh, through what they put on the shelves. Mm. And that in combination with starting to read the music press and really reading music books a lot, sent me on my own little pathway. So who's Tim Buckley? Who's Nick Drake? Who's Fairport Convention? And all of this stuff, you know, I, I... started reading a music magazine about 86 called Melody Maker and it became my obsession. I was walking through W.A. Smith's and um, I was very into hip hop and on the front cover was Public Enemy. Bought it, read the Public Enemy article and then start flicking on My Bloody Valentine, But I'll Surface, all these mad bands. And beyond that, you know, when they were writing about My My Bloody Valentine, they'd be talking about all this other old music and you just went on this journey of kind of your own reconnaissance of discovering and teaching yourself about music. Coventry Central Library in conjunction with Melody Maker was really my education um, to a large extent. So, yeah, I mean, people like my sister, magazines like Melody Maker, places like Coventry Central Library really fostered a hunger for music and fed that obsession all the way through the 80s. Uh, In fact, all the way through to the time when I actually start writing for the music press in in the early 90s. I think the crucial thing with great music, just like great music criticism, is that it's a launch pad to so much, you know, and and every great album leads to about 20 other great albums that you could listen to. And this was the process, just this this omnivorous kind of first for music. And, you know, and and literature, it's the combination for me because I'd, I'd go to the record bit, get these records out, but I'd also go to the music books and I'd read stuff by Nick Conn and, and Lester Bangs and all these amazing music critics. Um, it was that combination of literature and music that totally obsessed me and, and that, you know, led me to dreams of perhaps one day writing about music professionally, dreams that I never, ever thought would come true because nobody like me was really in the music. There was no Asian music writers. I know it sounds like a little daft thing. Being a music critic, I really genuinely didn't expect that to happen. Mm. In 1993, I'd just left uni, not a clue what to do or what I wanted to do. If you'd have asked me what I wanted to do for a living then, I would have said like astronaut or something like that. And I wrote a letter to Melody Maker. Um, you know, just their letters page is moaning about not covering metal properly, not covering black music properly, things I've been wanging on about ever since, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. They printed it as Letter of the Week. And um, I had actually used a pseudonym. I'd used the pseudonym of Clifford C. Clavin, who was my favourite character from Cheers. And they printed this letter. Um, and at the bottom of it, it said kind of, do you think you can do any better, Mr. Clavin? Get in touch. Um, and I was, was a cocky, arrogant little git back then. And I did phone them and I said, yeah, I do think I can do better, actually. And they commissioned me to do a few sample articles, um, one of which that I, I turned in was like a 10,000-word review of Miles Davis LP. I was nuts. I don't know what I was thinking of. But um, <laughs> sent them in. They bit. They got me doing a few local reviews. And I'll never, ever forget this moment in sort of late 93, early 94, when I'm walking through my normal route around town, uh, WH Smith looking at the music mags, pick up Melody Maker, open up the pages, and there's my name. Misspelled, I have to say, called Carmi, but never mind. I levitated at that moment. I just could not believe that had happened. And truth be told, I, I sometimes tell journalism students, you know, your whole journalistic life is a downward spiral from that initial high point of seeing your name in print. That's a little bit too cynical, but that's a never ending addictive thrill and buzz. That is, I still get that. When I go to WH Smith's now and I open up Wire magazine or, or, or some title that I write for and I see my name, you never get over that. Uh, seeing your name in print next to something about music, it's just like, oh my God. This is amazing. So even in the depths of however bad the job got, and it did get pretty bad, as we may well discuss, I would always have argued that what, writing about music? This is the greatest job in the world. 
And I'm still not over it, really. I, I still can't quite believe it. I'm still waiting for the tap on the shoulder. <laughs> Do you know what? I Yeah, I mean, I've always been waiting for that knock on the door to see. That's him. <laughs> That's the one. Take him away. Yeah, he's been getting away with it. Bang to rights, mate. You're absolutely right. <laughs> to be honest. Let's head then to autumn 1996. Why have you chosen this time? Well, I've chosen this time because for me, 96, it's kind of a crossroads moment for British pop. There's so much in place on this compilation and in 1996 in general that would indicate the way things were going to go. I mean, and I have to say, not in a good way. No. (laughs) Um, You know, for me, the, the divide between pop and indie rock is what's key here. And, and the reason I chose something from 1996 in particular was because for me, it was kind of, I'm not saying it's the last good year of the 90s, but it was, I was having a good time in 96. It was a golden age in t- for me in work terms. I was starting to find my voice critically and I was writing substantial parts of the magazine. I was starting, which is this joyous thing of being freelancer, of getting sent abroad all over the world, all over the States, all over Europe, or loads of travel opportunities that I would never have had otherwise. I was starting to enjoy a slight role as kind of hatchet man against Britpop at Melody Maker. Um, so it, that was enjoyable as well. And, and and this was a time in my life, I militantly write, stayed in Coventry. I started writing sort of professionally, I guess you could call it in 94, and straight away people were like, you've got to get out of Coventry, you've got to move out of London. And I didn't, I militantly didn't. But I mean, it wasn't kind of like a bold stance. It was shyness. I felt included in something in a way that I hadn't before. But I was also running into that marginalisation that I think I've always felt, and to, to a certain extent, I've always fostered. I worked in King's Reach Tower, 30 floors of magazines. And the only other Asian and black people I saw in that building, apart from Delhi for Delhi for the NME, was, were pushing tea trolleys around. And kind of also to a certain extent, there was a vague sense that if I move to London, the only mates I'm going to make are what? PR people, people in bands and other journalists. And before you knew it, I thought I might start doing favours for mates and my integrity might go out the window. In terms of the work I was getting, mm. I was obsessed with that magazine. So, you know, to work alongside people like Simon Price and David Stubbs and these writers who, you know, really affected me as a young reader, it was an exciting time for me work-wise. But at the same time, I saw everything going wrong with the culture, with the musical culture of the period. And when I think about the pop culture of 1996, what was happening and in the culture around music, the writing was on the wall as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, with the beauty of hindsight looking back now, Mm. as this album was being released November 1996, it looked as if the world was unstoppable. And there was this almost a kind of overconfidence of actually we can now achieve anything. It, it was still a very interesting time for British politics. There had been Euro 96. Britpop looked like it was just going to keep on rolling on forever. Mm. And not even just Britpop itself, but the whole UK culture was almost kind of saying, actually, do you know what? We can yeah. almost do anything. Did nobody see the end of this coming? Well, yeah. No, indeed. And, and, and it was precisely that kind of triumphalism that you're talking about, Ian, mm. that I bitterly, bitterly resented. I mean, one of the bands that doesn't feature on this compilation, but that we're going to have to talk about are Oasis. Mm, um, yeah. Right, and 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 that draping in the flag, this clicking of the heels together to vanish yourself back to a sixties. I bitterly resented it. This notion that the Britpop wars were had kind of won in a sense, and grunge was over. Britishness had won. My ports of call for pop had entirely changed by this point. I was no longer listening to any Radio One bar. John Peel and Tim Westwood probably. Mm. Top of the Pops had started that horrible shift, I think, under Rick Blacksill towards ignoring exciting dance records, treating pop as if it was all Westlife and treating bands with far too much reverence. I felt increasingly alienated from that. You know that thing that happens when you're growing up and, and you're watching Top of the Pops or something like that and one of your bands comes on. I felt increasingly alienated from that sense of our bands being on Top of the Pops. Mm. And two, uh, two crucial things that debuted in uh, 1996 were for me emblematic for me of all that was wrong number one was never mind the buzzcocks which I found a loathsome and cruel and fundamentally sneery show about pop music and and the laddish attitude of it boys trying to make girls cry basically was also characterized by another thing that rose up in 1996 the birth of loaded magazine yeah Um, and these two things 
culturally they pointed the way to so much so much that I think was immensely damaging and I by 96 although I was getting plenty of work for the magazine I, magazines rather that I was working at I did start noticing certain things that troubled me immensely in 96 97 time I remember being in an editorial meeting and suggesting that Ronnie size should be on the cover and the editor of the magazine saying black people on the cover don't sell right okay this is Britpop which bits of Britain are you talking about here you know yeah. which particular sector of Britain are you talking? So it didn't resemble any Britain that I knew so 96 for me is a, a, a kind of pivotal turning point, if you like. I kind of just dug my nails in and kind of like stayed until the bitter end with Melody Maker at the tail end of the decade. But an awful lot of people saw the writing on the wall and, and a lot of my friends who I had made at Melody Maker started stepping aside because they realised that this kind of consensus of laddishness mm. was massively winning over, unfortunately. What what surprised me actually listening back to this album was how few of these tracks have either stood the test of time or <laughs> have actually indicated to where long term things were going. You know, we talk about the time capsule element, but mm. I mean, this is like a it's like a sociology experiment. This album, when you look back on it, to be honest, yeah. Well, what was crucial for me was, you know, I mean, part of, I think, becoming a music journalist isn't just that you kind of want in on the industry or some stuff like that. You want to correct pop wrongs yeah. right, that you are seeing out there. You know, I want to stress 1996, the 90s in general, actually, what an amazing time for music. It's one of the greatest decades in music history, I think. There was so much astonishing stuff coming out. What started happening is that bands as commercial successes, that's all that mattered. Mm. Uh, in, in the supposed music press, that's all that mattered. And numbers could just bully everything else out of the way there was fantastic music being made in 1996 but would it ever get on the cover of melody maker no because we were scared and we, and we you know we were trying to address a readership and we, we were underestimating them and condescending to them to a certain extent and and all of these things clustered together in 1996 and what you can see on the tracks on this particular compilation i mean for me it's quite an easy way uh, to split this mm. the pop stuff's pretty good yep. the indie stuff's pretty awful man Pretty soon after this, late nineties, those two things are just going to diverge entirely. What what this compilation summons up? There's some thrilling pop music on this on this yeah. now thirty five. There's some bog awful indie stuff. The fact that I wrote for a magazine that seemed to boost the latter and not the former antagonised me immensely. It is a fascinating snapshot, mm. and as you say, not always great, but you have to take the good with the bad. This tells the story of what was happening at the time, and it's always fascinating to go back and actually see oh indeed i mean for a true picture of 1996 i would argue that something like now 35 is is perfect yeah because it's not curated with any kind of agenda in a sense what it's reflecting is what is commercially successful in that year or in that particular period so you get the great and the good and you also get the god awful in there and it provides a genuine proper snapshot <laughs> Now 35 with 40 of the biggest hits around from Baby Bird and the Beautiful South. Now 35 with the number one smash from Boyzone. Peter Andre, Dodgy and E17 with Gabrielle. The number ones from George Michael and Spice Girls. Now 35. That's what I call music. So, this is Now 35. It was released on the 18th of November, 1996. Interestingly, the last vinyl Now album release. Oh, right. Um, which... And I wonder if anyone anyone would have bought it on vinyl like that. This was the period where CDs were, of course, paramount. And, oh, and I yeah. think, you know, 1996, I'm not saying the MP3 hadn't been invented, but it hadn't really swum into our lives. The internet hadn't really swum into our lives. I mean, in 1995, Ian, I was faxing my articles in, you know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? Which is nuts when I think about it. CD1, track one, Spice Girls, say you'll be there. Oh, this is just tremendously exciting. And the thing is, we say you'll be there. For me, it was the test record, if you know. Yes. Wannabe, yeah. of course, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that was undeniable. That was a juggernaut. Could they follow it up? And, oh, yes, they did. And actually, they followed it up with tracks that were even catchier. Later on, the Spice Girls would provide me with my first kind of encounter as an adult with just how traumatic pop loss can be. Mm. My stepdaughter, when the Spice Girls split up, she was 
incredibly so i've never seen someone so traumatized really yeah the spice girls meant a hell of a lot to a hell of a lot of people and of course in this period here the thing is that's perhaps slightly vindictive of me i would use artists like the spice girls as kind of like i love this because you know that this proves i fucking hate that stuff yeah because <laughs> it yeah. would wind up indie fans Oh, yeah. I would, you know, wind up indie fans if I said that, you know, Spice Girls have more integrity than Oasis, which I absolutely think they did. This is an absolute slam bang introduction to this album. Brilliant pop single. You know, in fact, the first few tracks I think are great here. So let's kind of group together. So we've got George Michael, Fast Love. Oh, what a tune. <laughs> I mean, I prefer the original. Yeah. Uh, this this is... is a kind of remix, but I, I don't care. This is it for me. This is me is George Michael's greatest song. Yeah. So dark so adult mm. so suffused with that simultaneous feeling of ennui but also propulsion to the beat it's the same beautiful combination that Womack and Womack's teardrops several years earlier and it's up there for me with his other great dark masterpiece in this era uh, a different corner which is an amazing song mm. um thing is I don't think I decoded the lyrics when I first heard it mm. and then when you of course apprehend the lyrics properly my god they're amazing what a but they're, they're amazingly sad as well it's just a wonderful record watching the video back as well it's it's a proper 96 time capsule <laughs> yeah yeah, that, yeah, that yeah video for fast love um, yeah that wonderful nod to kind of r&b and hip-hop in there Completely. as well and it's just one hell of a group i mean the thing is i think it sort of got to number one before anyone realised what the hell it was about, yeah. um, in a sense. And then when you noticed it, my God, that's one of the most startling number ones we've ever had in this country. So, yeah, I mean, this tremendous starts in now 35. And if it had all been bangers like this, I'd be perfectly happy. Yeah, yeah. sadly <laughs> not, Neil, sadly not. <laughs> um, so we have um, Peter Andre. Do you know what? <laughs> yeah. So, so many well, Mr. Chipolata, as we can now call him, I think. I couldn't remember this track. Sorry, Peter. No, no. And and honestly, playing it again didn't bring back any memories. Whereas other pop songs on here, because I think we've got E17 here as well, haven't we? Yeah, now th- this is an interesting E17 track. It was a new release. It was it was to trail their best of album. Yeah, yeah. It, I think it's not exactly a banger, no, but it's a nice little R&B track. And it reminds me of kind of... Um, the fact I went to see Seventeen that mm. year, nineteen ninety six. It was um, I went to see them at the Albert Hall, and you know I've been to punk all day as metal all day as where I've literally been stood on a stool sipping my creme de month whilst the mosh pit descends into ugly carnage. But none of those gigs were remotely as terrifying as seeing E Seventeen at Albert Hall. That was the most intense gig going experience of my entire life. Yeah. Um, the unleashed hormonal energy of tens of thousands of teenage girls just screaming at the top of their lungs. I remember looking around and the only other blokes there were kind of dads who bought their daughters and they looked similarly terrified as me. I've never experienced anything like it to this day. I mean, I've been at very intense gigs, but nothing compares to E17. They, they, I mean, it, it's forgotten really, not just how big they were, but how intense the devotion was and how much of a choice it was for young girls between them and Take That. Take That had obviously finished. E17, sadly, were probably also nearly finished as nearly well. Nearly finished, yeah. But for different reasons. I think they were trying to keep going, whereas mm. Take That stopped. But E17, I know, actually, I've known that this was E17's last single for London Records before moving to Telstar. Uh, right. I'll, I'll just leave a pause in there. <laughs> um, but, you know, so so it was, you know, there was that time. But I've got a lot of respect for Tony Mortimer. I, th- I think Tony Mortimer often is overlooked as a pop star, as a pop writer, you know. He's, he's a fab songwriter. You yeah. know, and you, yeah, you're right. The, the, the search is, I suppose, always on for a new boy band. What, what's noticeable in this year is we've got people like Damage. I think Love to Love's on this. Mm, uh, yeah, LP, yeah. Isn't there? And, and yeah. you know, you can hear in that the impact of TLC and the impact of R&B production on so much of this. Well, yeah, um, and British that's part. something that I was I was interested to get your views on because from someone who's written a lot about hip-hop over the mm. years, there's not a great deal of hip-hop on this album. But no, there isn't. There isn't. Isn't that very noticeable? And you can undoubtedly, in the sonics of British pop music at the time, you can hear the influence of this stuff. People like E17 are obviously listening to a lot of hip-hop. Oh, yeah. As, Gabriel, as is everybody. And they listen to producers like Timberland and, and people like that. And they're feeding that into their own production methods. But 
it's oddly overlooked, not only in this compilation, but yeah, you won't see those legendary performances by those people on top of the pops. They just weren't asked on, no. I guess. And yet, things like Buster Rhymes were getting chart smashes. Yeah. Um, but you're not really seeing any of this here. Hip hop is the kind of unspoken influence on an awful lot of the pop music here. And by this point, hip hop has percolated into things so much that, you know, you could not imagine a boy band that doesn't have a song where one of them starts rapping at some point. No. Or one of them throws a shape or something like that that is very hip hop animated and even the fashions and everything else you know i again liked to boost boy bands no matter how crap they were because it it antagonized indie fans i mean i remember sticking up massively for mna you know because it felt like a battle yeah i'm going to stick up for these guys whose promotional push includes the you know mna underwear over some authentic (laughs) calling musician you know but yeah i mean you can definitely hear throughout the kind of non-indie pop that's on this now 35 you can hear the palpable influence of an awful lot of listening to American hip-hop yep. by, by British artists and also producers. Interestingly, though, again, just looking across the whole track list, there's not mm. even a lot of American artists on here. No, but, there isn't. And again, I don't know if that's just because of where British pop was at the time. Track five, actually, is one of the very few American artists on here. And guess what? It's Deep Blue Something. <laughs> Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah, uh, which I, is by no means, look, by no means Britpop, but it's actually revealing of something. And as much as beyond anything else, it reveals this thing that's happening in rock songwriting at the time, that thing mm-hmm. of appearing half smart by quoting something from the past. Yeah, you're right. In as, I mean, I think what you're, what, the thing you point out, there aren't many American acts here, is part of that triumphalist wave that was kind of going on at the time across British pop that we'd kind of won, I guess. I mean, one of the arguments proposed in favour of Britpop in its really early years was that, yeah, we need to have British voices that, mm. that, that, that you know, we can't just surrender to grunge rock. Now, grunge was obviously on the wane by now. Mm. Um, but that sense of triumphalism, I think, does percolate through to this track listing. And, and you'll also notice it in all kinds of other areas of popular culture in terms of the magazines and also TV, music on TV. It was frequently dominated by the Brits, as if we were winning in some way, yeah. or, as if, or as if we had won. But yeah, it, that is really noticeable, because for me, 96, amazing American hip-hop coming yeah. out. Um, yeah. And none of it's here. It's only when you actually stop and look at an album like this and you realise that, oh my goodness, we really, as a British record industry, thought we were world beaters. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah completely, completely, absolutely. And and you could see now 35 as a document, really, of that kind of triumphalism. But as soon as you start digging into it, you realise the shaky ground that that triumphalism is based upon. I mean, yes, all of this stuff is British, but which Britain is being represented by exactly. now 35? That's the question. This is an old story, a story as old as time, if you like. Yeah. But in, in 1996, it's got an extra kind of, I don't know, pattern of smuggery, where <laughs> there was an awful lot of confidence in 1996. Um, in the record of course what none of us know in 1996 unless you were some sort of prophet like David Bowie is none of us know that there's this thing about to happen called the internet that is going to throw all of this completely up in the air both our position as critics goes and you know the record industry position is kind of people need us to get heard goes all of that's going to collapse pretty soon but it's preceded in 96 by this slightly revolting wave of smuggery <laughs> i love that a revolting wave of smuggery that was, I'm, I'm sure i heard that session on john peel <laughs> fabulous Pet Shop Boys almost sit in a world of their own anyway. And yeah. they weren't bowing to what was going on around them. No. At this no, point, they've, they've sailed on much like, much like say, Sparks or something. They've, oh, they've yeah. sailed on doing their own stuff. Mm. I mean, I have to, I have a confession to make, and this will probably, I, I've mentioned this on social media before, and it nearly got me kind of kicked out of the music journalist club or something. I've never got on with the Pet Shop Boys, yeah. with one caveat. West End Girls are man. I bought that on 12 and 85. I freaking love that record. Yeah. And the reason I love that record is because it's chunky. It's got every beat to it, every bass to it. Yeah. After yeah. that, I lost interest in Pet Shop Boys. But honestly, Pet Shop Boys, and I, I'd say bands that are similar in a sense, not sonically, but bands that you cannot admit you don't like if you're a music journalist, <laughs> would also be New Order. I would also say Dex's Madonna. And I love Dex's, but I don't 
not that keen on the order. But yeah, Pet Shop Boys are one of them. You cannot say as a music journalist that you're not into the Pet Shop Boys. No. But here they are, yes, doing their Pet Shop Boys thing. They're doing their thing and they're not bowing in any shape or form to, to Britpop, so that's double bonus for Neil and Chris. So, <laughs> Baby Birds. Um, <sighs> now, to me, right, this um, is that Britpop Corona. Here are Baby Birds basically trying to cling on to the outside of this, saying, actually, we could be a bit like Britpop here, but we're not really Britpop. Well, indeed. You're Gorgeous is the first bit of indie rock we get here, really. And my God, what a truly dismal song You're Gorgeous is. It's just dreary. And in an age of of the things we've been talking about, the exciting hip-hop, drum and bass and everything else that's going on, it seems like much of the indie pop that we hear, a Mm. deliberate refusal to engage in the present. I mean, what do we get next? It's like Rotterdam, isn't it? Beautiful South. It is just like, you know, coming up next, the news uh, and then the travel. But first, here's Rotterdam. (laughs) I mean, this... That's exactly it. But I mean, we're not... I suppose we're not allowed to just like, because people like Paul Heaton they're nice they're nice (laughs) on social media you know they're nice there's too many bloody nice guys. James Blunt's a nice guy on Twitter. It does not mean I excuse his music. No. And, and, you know, hearing Rotterdam again, oh, my God. Music without edge, entirely without edge, but, you know, did pasted up into gruel for easy consumption. It's a skillful thing to do, but, my yeah. God, there's so much more exciting stuff going on at the time. And this is the trouble mm. with when, when this album attempts to balance its essentially pop heart mm. with this sort of uh, proper guitar music, if you like, it doesn't have to choose some dreary examples. And yeah, yeah I mean, Baby Bird and, and Beautiful South, perfect, perfect examples of that. Yeah. And then we have got Dodgy. It's again, it's a bit dreary. It doesn't yeah, it's dreary. Dodgy, Dodgy, I recall being okay live because they've got a great drummer. Any music that feels like you should be wearing a floppy wicketkeeper's hat, I, I kind of resent it at this point. And if I could jump to another track, by the way, to tie that in with mm-hmm. Ocean Colour Scene, man. I mean, it... as soon as I hear the beginning of Riverboat song, it just reminds me of Chris Evans. That's all I can see. This is it. It's it's not so much the the, the thing that Ocean Colour Scene say that you know there's nothing new to be done. I like loads of dated music. It's the shamelessness of the larceny. And, and, and the refusal to inject it with anything personal. Mm-hmm. You know, I will agree nothing's original in a sense. We are all confecting music from the past of music to a certain extent. But what is original is persona, is the person putting it together. Mm. Uh, I don't get that from any of these bands, and especially not Ocean Colosseum. And, and, you know, for me, lyrics were often overlooked in Britpop, and they were some of the most awful lyrics in British pop history. Yeah. But they were always dead giveaways to me of those bands that I loved in that whole indie world, if you like, and those that I didn't. So, for instance, a band that, you know, is also represented here from that world, Pulp. Mm. Pulp, for me, were, even though they're represented here by Something Changed, which I don't think is one of their greatest songs, but it's quite a moving song. Mm. They were unproblematically great, great pop music. They were my band. I, I used to scowl by the side of the dance floor, waiting for lip gloss to drop so I could I could hit that dance floor, you know, and razzmatazz. They were my band. Super Furries were my band. Supergrass. These were bands that yeah. I loved that yeah. were called Britpop and, and just weren't. Pelt were never draping themselves in the flag, talking. And when they did talk about London, they talked about it in a very, very interesting way that was always yeah. class conscious and always deeply, deeply political. Mm. Whereas just kind of the ocean colour scene game, it was always massively unmoving to me. And, and the thing is, what they were magicking themselves back to, a lot of these bands, was this idea of the 60s that was entirely fictional. When you think about what the Beatles and the Stones, and the, what the, think about the Small Faces, right? Mm. Small Faces were a band that you could say Ocean Colour Scene were kind of in hock to. They were kind of trying to aim for that same kind of mod group. What did the Small Faces listen to? Exclusively nearly black pop music. You know, these people clicking the reels together, wishing the 60s back. You know, if they really wanted to emulate the spirit rather than just reconjure the kind of surfaces, mm. they'd have been listening to Timberland or, or yeah. Cypress Hill or whatever. They'd, be, they'd yeah. have been listening to contemporary black pop. What was heartbreaking to me as a music critic was that suddenly I started being kept away from those bands mm. and I, I started being discouraged from writing about them or saying anything because we got scared. Oasis sold loads and suddenly we can't contradict the kids. That is what is happening with so many of these indie bands. They're trying to conjure a completely fake picture of the past, how Ocean Colour Scene can make the music they did in the era of Tim Bland and Missy Elliott and Snoop and G-Funk and all of that is beyond me. They're not mods. They're not modernists. No. They're, they're essentially hippies. 
And, <laughs> you know, they're essentially curators of a dead culture. Being able to look back on this from this period now and look back, it is, it is very important to be able to identify that actually there was a lot wrong about this period. And, yep. and actually it did need overhauled. And what you're starting to see on this album is it was actually pop that would overhaul it. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I mean, this is the danger without shows like this show and <laughs> without yeah. properly looking back. What gets missed is the degrees and the nuance and the shade. So yeah. that what you get now is this idea, this palpable idea. And I, I see this actually in essays from students when they're writing about albums or something. You get that the, the, they genuinely have the idea that, it, say, in the 90s, you know, everyone was at the grunge. Mm. Or everyone bought Nevermind, or or everyone loved Blur, or everyone had a position in the Blur versus Oasis thing. Well, hold on a minute. If we're going to combat golden age narratives, one of the things I always tell my learners is don't ever think that music was better in the past. Yeah. You know, um, we, you were just made much more aware of all the shit at the moment, yeah. um, whereas back then there was just as much crap out there. Yeah. But, you know, if we're looking back at the 90s, it's not these grand narratives. It's a ton of micro-narratives. But unfortunately... The magazines that I wrote for were dominated by this kind of triumphalist idea yeah. um, with a vague sense that the Tory government was going to end soon, that, you know, things were going to get better. It's always a retrograde, apolitical thing, which was colossally problematic for me in the 90s because there were shit tons going on racially, politically, that none of this music was reflecting at all. Yeah. Let's scoop up the rest mm-hmm. of this CD and let's kind of see what we can pick out of that because yeah, yeah. we've got Crowded House in there, which again is an anomaly because Crowded House, I mean, Don't Dream It's Over is 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 one of these great pop songs. Yeah. It's already been out in 1987, um, but it was basically promoting a best of. So... That's a great song. What the hell is it doing on here? We've kind of touched on Cheryl Crow. This was a big hit in the UK. It's got that kind yeah. of slight kind of lazy indie drawl to it. You know, you can kind of hear that there. It has, yeah. Which is kind of- I, th- I, ha- I happen to think like Cheryl is actually, I'm not saying she's majorly underrated, but if a Cheryl Crow tune comes on the radio, I will leave it on because more often than not, it's probably a right catchy little banger. Oh, yeah. So um, hats, off, hats off to her. There are some interesting solo female voices on, on, on this record. You've got Nana Cherry, which really intrigued me. That still 100% stands up. Oh, absolutely. And there's this lovely feedback kind of loop with it, whereby, mm-hmm. you know, the Bristol scene that she sort of emerged from, you know, his feeling, it sounds like a massive attack record. It sounds like a Portishead yeah. record. And, and, and that's a wonderful thing. It's wonderful to see Bjork on there. Yeah, um, it really is. And possibly maybe on the second CD, absolutely jumped out the speakers again listening back so to right. she she had captivated me since 87 with the sugar cubes I, I loved bjork you've also got those kind of acts in a sense where that were kind of underground dance acts but had then become hugely popular in the music press so you got the you got faithless i'll never forgive faithless because <laughs> last time there was a massive solar eclipse in this country, I had to cover an appalling event. I had to get in a coach with a load of Lynx Africa competition winners. And I was driven to a field where Faithless were playing for the solar eclipse. The only good thing about it was that Baron Samady from Live and Let Die, um, the bomb film was there. It was an appalling way to spend the eclipse. Nobody had any pills. Um, it was awful. But um, Faithless, I never liked. Underworld, I loved and uh, it's great to see Underworld yeah. presented here. One forgets. If we are talking Britpop, I think we have to talk about Underworld and Orbital and all of these sort of dance oh, yeah. that never quite cracked into yeah. that notion of Britpop. This was my argument, Britpop. Britpop's actually, in essence, not, not necessarily an appalling idea, but let's include everybody, yeah? yeah? I mean, let's include some British hip-hop. Let's include this voice and that voice. It never seemed to be that way. And, and you know why? What started happening, right? The reason the music press completely tied themselves up with Britpop is because it's easy covering bands, especially if the band's a bit gobby and they've got a chippy lead singer who provides you with loads of quote and copy, you know. Whereas what was actually happening in late 80s British pop and in early 90s British pop was, of course, dance music. And dance music thrives on the kind of faceless identities of the protagonists involved. I happen to disagree with that to a certain extent, in as much as I think there would have been some fantastic top of the pops moments. And moments front cover of the music press. Why weren't alternate on the front cover? You know, oh, why weren't yeah. why weren't these these people were very characterful? Mm. But you know, the music press relied on it, thrived on it. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes that can be amazing. Mm. I remember the first suede cover of yeah. Maker. And I, I was like, who is that creature, Brett Anderson? He's gorgeous. I need to find out more about this band. And then when I heard the Suede singles, I fell in love with Suede. I love Suede and I love the song that's included here also. Yeah. But 
it became too much of a traditional pattern. Why not shake it up? But do you think there was a fear factor because, you know, we're talking about this 60s, 90s kind of connection. Mm. Mm. There was a safety. There was a safety in basically saying, you know what, we've got another set of Beatles and Stones here. Yes, yes. So actually we can just, we've got that rule book that was there in the 60s. We can just pull that one back out and we can paint it up, gloss it up, and actually we know it works. Whereas the dance culture, hip hop culture was something that was still seen as an outsider. It was Absolutely. something that couldn't and, be tamed into that model. And the thing is, Ian, that, that sense of kind of um, trying to err on the side of those traditional old models, that's also happening in pop, not just indie rock. Because after that initial kind of faceless revolution of dance music, if you like, even in this compilation, you can see pop swinging back to something a little bit more traditional. You've got mm-hmm, boy mm-hmm. bands, you've got these big pop acts like Westlife. Mm-hmm. These are things that are traditionally easy to deal with. Yep. The actual next revolution that's down a pipe is they hinted at, certainly in the production of some of these records, is Grime and So yep. Solid and Speed Garage and all of that, which then opens up really what we get in the noughties, which to me, I think, is a segregated pop scene in the mm-hmm. UK. You've got black music continuing on its path, white music continuing on its path, beautifully in our current era i think those two things are refused again but it's not just the indie market that is seeking these traditional motifs it's also the pop market here i just want to mention belinda carlisle very 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 briefly and it's Mm -hmm. back to the cd single culture because there were two cd single releases for this track right so if you were a fan you were spending at least a tenner on this Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the first one had whatever a couple of things a cover of the Ballad of Lucy Jordan, which I, I can't even begin to imagine what that oh sounds like. Oh my God, really? Right. But the <laughs> second CD single is more interesting because it has Heaven is a Place on Earth, A Circle in the Sand, and I Get Weak. Now, that is a hugely cynical opportunity to get that single in at the top That's ten. That's great. I mean, they might, oh my God, they might as well have got to do a, a Bee Gees medley on the B yep. side or something. That's nuts. But it's like, that you know, shameless, isn't it? Let's give the kids her greatest hits on CD yep. too. Indeed, indeed. Buying a single, oh, there's three hits on there. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that probably worked, and it probably accounts for why that is in on this. Oh yeah, or rather got in the charts. Yeah, and uh, you know, without climbing back in a time machine, I bet that CD two was one (laughs) ninety (laughs) nine. Sorry, absolutely. But I know. I think you're absolutely right. Anything about Lighthouse Family? No, um, no, Lighthouse Family are literally a band that is impossible to talk about <laughs> because they have um, ironed their music out to a, a, a unicellular thinness, no. which means it doesn't engage anybody. <laughs> it's literally, I mean, it's as close to tranquilizer as music gets. Do you know, it's sold in such huge quantities, you can see the next century coming up. Oh here. my God, yes. Think about think about what's going on on Lighthouse Family record, right? Slightly danceable beats with that horrible acoustic guitar on it. How much current pop is aiming to sound like that? So, so much. It's this cleanly kind of sound, this deodorized sound. Yeah, kind of Bond baddies in the background. (laughs) In the Key of Q is a podcast series showcasing gay and bi musicians from around the world. Musicians like A Natural. I'm in love with this game with Musicians like Brandon James Gwynn. I tried to be good, but baby, I don't try too hard. And musicians like Q-Boy. Communities are made up from the smallest of minds. Negative reactions are used to get all the time. In the Key of Q is available now from all good podcast feeds. Let's move on to Combat Disc 2, and we kick off with Escaping by Dina Carroll. Yeah, who can forget it, eh? Me. Um, yeah, like- it was a last top 10 hit. Thanks, Dina. We'll right. see you again soon. Um, Boyzone. So the pretenders to the crown of the new boy band, big BG's cover. Yeah, and again, like much of this uh, compilation, oddly prophetic of, of what's to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cover culture, quotation culture. Girl bands were fundamentally kicking boy bands' asses at this point because they were just all tremendously more exciting than the boy bands. And Boy's Own and another boy band that we'll see in a bit, you know, they were so completely bland. I know that since their demise, these bands have actually got more interesting because as individual members, they can go off on their own lunatic trails. Whereas, you know, bands like Boy's Own, ruthlessly controlled in terms of what they could do. And there was this sense with bands like um, Westlife Boy's Own, especially Boy's Own, after their unforgettable appearance on the Late Late Show. I was kind of starting to apprehend at this point that actually, you know what, being famous might not actually be that much fun. And they seemed particularly joyless. And it's always going to be a big seller. 
um, to the nans and the grands, but also to very young girls, I think. Any girl who kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say girls should have listened to something, but for me, it would have been a definite choice if I was a teenage girl at that time between, say, Boyzone and, say, E17 or, or M&A or somebody like that. Yeah. And if you're opting for Boyzone, um, you need to have a word with yourself. Well, actually, let's just group a few tracks together here because sure. we touched on Damage earlier mm. and also the Backstreet Boys are on there as well. Interestingly, this was co-written by Eugene Wilde, who, as a kind of Now fan, had popped up on Now 4. So right, right, right. Kind right. Of moved into the writing realms mm-hmm. of things, which was interesting because I thought all the Backstreet Boys stuff was just written by Max Martin, but clearly not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, but yeah, you've got that interesting. And you've got Damage there, which is at least pulling on an R&B culture. Oh, without a doubt. Look, I, I mean, I can't imagine... Uh, Love to Love is the Damage track. And, yeah. And, um, it's basically a TLC track, in a yep. sense, with, with male singers on it. The impact of TLC is enormous at this point. Mm. The, the impact of an awful lot of American R&B is, is enormous at this point. And, yeah, I mean, I say again, this is the stuff that we couldn't get into music magazines. I mean, I remember reviewing a track called Touch Me, Tease Me, I think it was, by Case. And it was it, a lot of R&B production at this time was insane was really quite strange sonically and interesting sonically and i remember making it single of the week um in the melody maker and then the next week kind of all the letters came in what are you writing about this r&b crap why do you like black music blah 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 and it was that kind of response to it that i think our editors kowtow to whereas i would have loved i mean there was a moment in 1996 where we put two unlimited on the cover just to piss off our readers a little bit uh, that would never happen again after 1996 we couldn't take such commercial risks it yeah. would have been nice for instance to put damage on the cover i mean they're not great it's not a bad single, Love to Love. But the influence of contemporary American R&B mm. on pop is enormous at this time. Um, there's sort of two major influences, well, three major influences, I think, going on in the pop stuff that we hear on this, uh, apart from the boy zones and that. R&B, dance music, and it's hip-hop. And those are the three things really pushing pop along. And those are the three things that contemporary rock and contemporary indie music at this time is deliberately and assiduously and noticeably and tellingly avoiding completely. I think about the other stuff here, Stretch Vern. Yeah. Um, That strike song, My Love Is Real, which I really, actually really like. These aren't pasteurizations of dance music. They're they're dance music. And and, and they're they're still getting in the charts. Top of Pots doesn't know what to do with them. The music press doesn't know what to do with them. The kids know what to do with them. Yeah. And, And, you know, the kids are buying them, which is reflected in this comp. But this is the glorious thing about now compilations. They are unfailingly snapshots of all of the pop audience, not just the pop audience that you might have felt part of. Yeah, because if you kind of scroll down later on in this CD, if you were going to be really critical, well, not critical, describing some of these tracks, the genuine indie tracks on here are the tracks like Stretch and Vern and BBE and Strike. Absolutely. And well because they're coming out on dance labels like Positiva and all these types of labels. And this is what kids were listening to. That was the kind of outside of the mainstream stuff that was going on. Completely. Independent labels with a real reach, though, for, for people who are passionate about it. Whereas all these supposed bands who are avowedly independent, they're, they're mostly on Parlophone and stuff. You know, they're mostly on majors. Yeah. And, and, and they're on those major labels because they're easy to deal with their bands with front men. Whereas yeah. these dance figures are less easy to deal with. The trouble is, these dance people are actually visually way more exciting yeah. than another row of blokes looking moody. But unfortunately, they're not given the cultural space. But on the on the down low, if you like, on the underground, they're certainly having an impact. And, and later on in the decade, and as the decade turns into the next decade, this is the stuff that swims through. Nobody's really making music that anyone cares about anyway that sounds like freaking Oasis in 2001. The most exciting stuff is the stuff like So Solid and the garage stuff and things like that that are feeding from this kind of hardcore continuum that you can hear in stuff like Stretch Vert. Granted, it's poppy, poppy enough to get in the charts, but the grooves of these songs are heavy and hard and hard-hitting and, and they're, they're great, great dance music. Two tracks is an interesting analogy here. So you've got Clock covering mm. Oh What A Night and you've got Stretch and Vern effectively covering Earth, Wind and Fire, but in yeah, such yeah. a breathtakingly exciting way. 
the way they're using oh, gotcha. it is just incredible. And there's your two differences of the spectrum here. Cover culture was everywhere. We could see that. You stick on I'm Alive and you're going to absolutely just rock the place. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas the, the cover of Oh What a Night, is, it's a bit Joy Bunny-ish, isn't it, really? It's, I mean, yeah. very much so. too often now, you won't hear that. What you'll hear is, oh, yeah, 1996, Oasis, mate. Yeah. And, and it just was not the case for so, so many of us. That's there was a glorious sense as a writer, as a critic, there was a sense of, of simultaneous antagonism and optimism in boosting stuff like Stretch Vern yeah. that was proudly mechanical, proudly synthetic in an age of kind of real rock realism. Just, just to combat all those arseholes who write every week into the music press <laughs> saying, this isn't real music. It's not real music. It's not played on real instruments. It's not played by real people. Well, that's precisely what's exciting about it give me somebody who arrives on a tv uh pop show and just presses a button and stands there looking amazing rather than somebody with a freaking union jack on the guitar you know we're almost at that holding pattern point again now where there's so much brilliant music being made but it just isn't being heard no, it isn't being heard. And, and the supposed curators of this, and look, I've not got any deliberate antagonism towards Radio 6, for instance. Mm. But have a dip into those comments on their Facebook page here and there. And what you'll see time and time again is people saying, we don't want any rap on this station. We don't want any dance music on this station. That kind of parochialism mm. that we were detecting in our readers back in the 90s has really gone nowhere. My, my problem is, is that if we knew Melody Maker was going to fold, we should have gone down in flames and pissed off those people <laughs> rather than completely... <laughs> kowtow to them in a way when you listen to something like i'm alive perhaps more than the other pop tracks on here you really do see this is in, coming from a completely different sound world than all of this stuff that the music press is actually boosting and it's it's properly futuristic hmm. um uh, it's properly it, it's forward facing if you like in ways that so much of this music on now 35 is tied to the past in so many ways. I'm not saying it's the noughties already, but it blummin' it nearly is, you know what I mean? We touched on Underworld as well earlier on, but I mean, that's a brilliant inclusion on this album because again, it does stand out. Oh, without, yeah, absolutely. And Underworld themselves stood mm. out because Underworld, the people involved, were in a sense coming from a post-punk kind of era in a sense, coming from a kind of, how can I put it? It wasn't eclecticism for the, for the sake of it, that they were into all these kinds of different things. And and their music was just fascinating. Dub No Bass of My Head, man, is just such a great, great record. Yeah. And, and those records are immensely evocative of this era. Without Train Spotting or any of that, um, they're still immensely evocative of this era. And, and if for me, you know, it, it's like people talk about amazing gigs from this period and they always end up talking about freaking Oasis at Blooming Nebworth or Spike <laughs> Island or Radio Edit Glastonbury. For me, the most unforgettable festival appearances, apart from Pulp, I would say, in this period, are from people like Underworld. Yeah. Underworld were astonishing at festivals and you didn't even have to be on E to enjoy it. Yeah. Um, they really did prove... Um, for me, a really important thing that dance music worked on a big, big stage and, and worked in that way. Orbital were always astonishing live in this period. Unfortunately, the particular love of my life in this period, hip hop, was still crap live. I remember going to see Buster Rhymes in 96 and he was awful. He came out like two in the morning and it was the usual. So I remember seeing Wu-Tang Clan that year as well. And it was the usual thing of people shouting into a mic. Mm. <laughs> you could yeah. have earlier the music. Hip hop hadn't quite yet learned how to do this stadium rock thing, if you like. But by 96, people like Underworld and people like Prodigy, who absolutely mm. shouldn't be forgotten in this period. Yeah. They were, you know, their gigs were amazing. And, and they they were closer to rock and roll than any of these bands were. Yeah. Um, the excitement you'd get from a Prodigy show was just intense. It was rock and roll dynamics, but played with this amazing electronic music. And Underworld were really key to that as well. I won't go all the way down that road because I freaking hate Faithless. But... Um, <laughs> it, no, it's really nice to see Underworld there. Underworld are a reminder that, you know, away from the laddish confines of Britpop, 
there was some amazing music being made, often by people, yeah, like Underworld, who were slightly dissident, slightly marginalised figures. Mm. But the thing is with Underworld, of course, is lyrically they were astonishing. And yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying Lager 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 is a great lyric, but if I wanted to point someone towards lyrics in the mid '90s that genuinely summated the era, rather than kind of just thieved old Beatles motifs like Oasis did, I would point them towards Underworld. That's proper post-punk poetry in a sense, in a dance setting, and and those tracks still sound mighty those tracks still don't date they don't date no. whereas an awful lot of the Britpop here does looking back now to my memories of 96 i would quite happily remember that i'd remember seeing the prodigy at seeing the park which is one of the quite equally one of the most thrilling and scariest experiences of my life <laughs> um i have to say and, i think i was at tea in the park for that prodigy show if well, you, yeah, it was yeah. just incredible i mean it was it was proper i mean it was like a sea of people really mm. moving and if you got caught in it you were stuck you know but it was it was it was pop enthusiasm that same rush of adrenaline and just oh absolutely feeling and the diversity i mean you know it's not a checklist of diversity or something but when i think about the audiences for shows like underworld and prodigy it's just a completely different group yep. of people and a completely different mix of people that's what's crucial yeah. i personally don't think you know this this old thing that oh you know great pop only comes in the working classes or anything like that i think what's interesting about british pop quite often is that mix of classes that, mm. that music enables but you know i mean it just the simple thing you go and see oasis you're going to run am i going to run into another asian bloke probably not but if i go and see orbital if i go and see prodigy yeah i'm going to see england as i know it as opposed to this kind of rarefied section of it so i mean that was that was immensely thrilling i mean the things with prodigy i remember interviewing liam once and and what was interesting about prodigy what was interesting about underworld was that they listened to so much that, that, that they weren't just stuck in the past. They were listening to contemporary hip hop. They were listening also to, you know, contemporary metal and things. That, that There was a real interesting fusion of kind of influences and intents in that music that I didn't get anywhere else. And actually, in some ways, I want to leave now 35 on a high. And by doing that, I don't really want to talk about Space and Shed 7, unless you have anything <laughs> you want to say about Space and Shed 7. No, no, I mean... You know, these are the arse end of the Britpop market. These are the bands that came in Blur Oasis's wake. These are mediocrities who the the, the, the kind of growth of Britpop pushed for a prominence that they might not have deserved. But they did set up a dynamic for indie rock that all it could do from here on in was pastiche. Because they became commercially successful, it led to this crucial loss of nerve, I mean, editorially in my business, but also playlist-wise and everywhere else, that started that process of, of kind of PR dominating, PR dominating everything and PR dominating the kind of music business to the point where you would never give a critic an album that they weren't going to cheerlead for mm -hmm. because this stuff was successful it had to be kind of like boosted in that way but yeah no i've got very little to say about any of those. <laughs> you know the, I, I would say that now 35 look I, I know i've said it's a snapshot i think this is a slightly unfairly balanced snapshot to a certain extent mm -hmm. yes those bands have hits but there's a wealth of stuff that's left off now 35 that might have told a more authentic story if you like of, of what the charts were like yeah um the, these things were kind of oddities in the charts it was still at the point where their appearance on top of pots would be considered a special moment mm. um but yeah i mean come on now if you're still repping for shed bloody seven and the things that i would extract from Britpop that i think were called that but aren't yeah super fair is super grass pulp Maybe things like Dubstar as well. You yeah. know, a little one-off single by like bands like Velocet and things like that. There was some great stuff. But in an era of so much exciting British music, and not just in dance, I want to stress that, there was so much exciting indie music being made by bands like Broadcast and Pram and Laika and all these kind of figures on the underground that previously would have stuck on the cover, but now we just had to stick the lights of Oasis on the cover. There was a lot of exciting indie music being made, but it was bullied out of the way by the cultural juggernaut that was Britpop, whereas I was, as ever, really, scowling from the sidelines. <laughs> it's immensely dubious about the whole thing. In some ways, the tracks that really would look towards the future are actually scowling in the sidelines here on this album as well. Whereas a few years ago, Britpop would have been seen as the kind of, you know, the young pretenders and those that were coming through. They mm -hmm. already look now like the old-fashioned establishment Absolutely. on this album. Absolutely. And actually indie dance tracks and your Bjorks and these types of artists are the ones that are actually just biding the time on this album because it's like, actually, this is what the future can and will look like. 
those tracks are kind of waiting for the world to catch up, if you like. Whereas the Britpop tracks are kind of like, yeah, that now 35 is, is uh, unfortunately the people that I, in a sense, want to win in the now 35 battle don't win in a business sense but on an underground way in in a way in the way that music is going to be taken away from the record business to a certain extent in the subsequent decade and the interesting places you can find music and the interesting music that's being made that is prefigured in this compilation Mm. um unfortunately you've also got the way that the record industry is going to completely stick its heels in the sand and just um yeah revert to these old old motifs it's dangerous not only for indie rock, dangerous for pop. We've got a decade ahead, really, where people like Boyzone and Westlife are going to dominate, feeding into that X Factor style cover culture, mm. this in hockness to the past. Well, screw that. Let's see where Underworld ended up. Let's see where Stretch Vern and the sounds in that record end up. Mm. They won't end up on major labels. They might not end up on the front cover of the music papers, but that's where the most interesting music is going to make, be made in the subsequent decade after Now 35 comes out. If you want to know about culture at any given moment, I think actually the Now compilations are bloody good indexes of seeing where things genuinely are at rather than the kind of fictionalised sepia-tinted narratives that people do in retrospect. You know, the night is was not about Britpop and grunge. It was about so, so much more. This gives a hint of it, but it also leaves a lot out. Neil, thank you so much for joining me here on the Back to Now podcast. It has been fascinating heading back 26 years to 1996, but also just looking at this interesting album, Now 35. Indeed. Thanks so much for having us on, Ian. It's been a, it's been a slightly traumatic. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's been overwhelmingly a joy. Thanks so much for having me. 